You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I got something I want to talk about to you. Welcome to Communication Mixdown on 3CR, broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations. And we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and to First Nations peoples who may be listening. I'm Judith Peppard, and today we're looking at two issues discussed at the International Climate Conference, COP26, which wound up last week. Later in the show, we'll hear about the idea of a just transition from fossil fuels to renewables with Nick Bainton from the University of Queensland. But first up, we're looking at the impacts of climate change on women and girls. During the second week of COP26, a day was allocated to gender equality, and my next guests have been keeping a close eye on those developments. Betty Barker is a PhD candidate at Monash University studying climate change-induced relocation and displacement and how that is gendered in the context of Fiji. Katrina Lee Koo is an associate professor in international relations at Monash. They've written a paper entitled COP26, Why Education for Girls is Crucial in the Fight Against Climate Change. I spoke with Betty and Katrina last week on November the 11th and began by asking Betty about how climate change is affecting women and girls in Fiji and what she's finding in her research. We already know that climate change impacts different people differently. And this isn't just about gender of like men or women or gender non-binary people, but it's about the intersections of indigeneity or age and where you're located. So a person from Melbourne, Australia would be very disconnected from the realities of what it means to be living in an atoll nation in Kiribati. For the women particularly, it's definitely adding to their care work. In the Pacific, women are responsible for um, ensuring the family has food or taking care of the elderly or the children. And these are gendered roles. And in my research, I found out that the weather patterns were changing so rapidly that even the backyard gardens had to be given up. And they could no longer take on the responsibilities of maintaining the garden because the yields were lower or invasive species like crabs would come and destroy their crops all the time. So they chose not to do these things because it was adding to their workloads of taking care of their family and managing uh, everything else. Uh, Simple things like that have definitely taken a toll on women's lives. Yes. So that's one aspect. Are there some other things, Katrina, that you would point to as well that are affecting women in relation to climate change? I think Betty's really pointed on one of the big issues, which is the caring responsibilities increase for women and girls. So all of those socio-cultural, economic inequalities that they face become exacerbated. We can think about food insecurity. Um, Often when food becomes scarce because of climate change or an extreme weather event, it's girls that will go hungry. Girls are more likely to be taken out of school, either because the family can no longer afford to send them or because they're temporarily displaced or because they've got greater caring responsibilities. We'll see girls and women experience greater forms of gender-based violence. 
because they might be living in temporary shelters. They might find themselves having to walk further or go greater distances to be able to collect food, water, firewood. They might be vulnerable to violence because of family stress. One of the big issues for girls is early enforced marriage. So whenever there is a humanitarian crisis or a conflict, or even in COVID, we see dramatic rises in child early enforced marriage because families are no longer able to support all of their families. And this is seen as a, a, certainly a negative, but a coping mechanism where families, either through the use of bride price or dowry or, or for other reasons, are seeing their daughters getting married earlier. And this, of course, has a really big impact on education. And I think the last thing to mention, Judith, is as we experience more extreme and frequent extreme weather events, women are more likely to die. Women and girls are more likely to die. I saw some of the, the references to your paper. It really took me aback to see that girls and women are now 14 times more likely to die in a disaster compared to men. And also they quoted in that same article, 90% of the 140 people who died during the 1991 Bangladesh cyclone were female, 90%. How do you feel when you see those kinds of statistics? It's always devastating, but it's important to realize that the lives are already burdened with sociocultural inequalities, which prevent them from accessing opportunities and learning opportunities. One of the reasons why the mortality data was so high was because girls did not know how to swim, but the boys were taught how to swim. And even in those cases, the very, very like nitty gritty of those case studies show that when families were to save their children, they chose to save boys over girls. And so it's absolutely heartbreaking to continue reading data like this every single time. Yes. I mean, the title of your paper is Why Education for Girls is Crucial in the Fight Against Climate Change. So I'm wondering, what difference does it make when girls are educated? One of the very key examples is at COP26, where so many young women are advocating for issues. And the only way they can actually advocate in those spaces where they such an increase of technical terms, climate jargon, the only way they can be there and advocate and be a voice for their people is because of education. The education which enables them to understand what these issues are and how to actually connect them to make it relevant in a space like COP26. Education definitely enables their presence there. But also I've been following a lot of young women who've been going ever since they were 14 or 15. And their own journey in this time has evolved as well. Their message, unfortunately, remains the same. They're asking for more ambitious action, but their strategies are changed, becoming more innovative and more creative in how they voice their concerns and how they actually are part of the process. Yes. And what are some of the innovations? Can you give me some examples? Sure. And this is such an exciting thing I'm going to share. The Pacific delegation is extremely small this year, obviously, because of the travel restrictions. And one of the things, a very brilliant uh, young woman, Brianna Fruen from Samoa, who always wears a flower in her hair, and that's called a say in Samoa. So they got interviewed at BBC and all of these media outlets, which actually got them to tell their story. But then they innovated and created their own way, BB Say, so the, the flower, which was the essence of Pacific messaging there. Instead of saying BBC, they actually had BB Say, and that was a flower, a Pacific friend of Kenya. And I thought that was very instrumental and very exciting. It became a trending thing where they're like, 
this is our message and, and we're part of BBC. It was super exciting to see all of these messages coming from across the region, but also to see a lot of people following and catching up on what was actually happening and what that meant. Sharing of knowledge, but also sharing their stories in a way that was accessible to a wider variety of audience. Betty Barka from Monash University. And I hope you've seen some of those images on your television or in your social media. They just sound wonderful. In their paper, Betty and Katrina Lee Koo refer to Greta Thunberg's description of the COP26 summit as a two-week-long celebration of business as usual and blah, blah, blah. And they point out that the growing youth activism is acknowledgement that this damaged planet is theirs to inherit and to fix. Here's Katrina. The youth activism is a product of young people's capacity to be able to network with one another and to develop the kinds of skills and knowledge that comes from education. So education is at the heart of that. And we've seen some absolutely inspirational leadership from young women on this issue. You mentioned Greta Thunberg, Judith, and Betty mentioned activism here in this region. But as a young woman who spoke in Glasgow um, from Uganda, who's been absolutely pivotal in starting a movement to ban plastic bags in Uganda, and that's had such a significant impact. So we've got so many inspirational young women who are thinking about this as a problem for their future, as a problem for their children and their families and their communities. And the way they think about this issue is far more holistic than what we're seeing in the actual debates of COP26, which is very much about economic security in the here and now, political sustainability, of particular governments, the maintenance of trade, of all of those sorts of issues. And I think that what young people bring to this is the big picture, it connects the past and the future, but also connects us in an entire kind of planetary experience rather than a, a series of countries that are seeking particular advantage in the here and now. Yes, pretty much describes, I think, what's happening in Australia. The, the new climate policy rating was released out of Germany and Australia ranked, I think it was 58 out of 60 in terms of climate policy. It achieved a score of zero, which was right at the bottom of the ranking alongside Algeria. And Betty, do you have some sense of how Australia is being seen in the region? Yes, I saw this incredibly powerful speech by Reverend James, who's a theologist at COP26, and he actually called out the Australian government in terms of using the word vuvale, which actually means family in Fijian, but not actually upholding to the concept of what vuvale means. Australia definitely has a lot of potential, not only in stepping up to do it, but also trend setting. Australia keeps tiptoeing around these issues and doesn't want to be a world leader in climate action, whereas it has the potential to be a leader and show the world that this is how it's done and this is how it can be done. It's not about getting it perfect in the first instance, but it's about showing a commitment to taking that action urgently and also upholding the partnership with the Pacific Islanders, but also in the Indo-Pacific region, particularly because a lot of the vulnerable states are in this region. It would be a step up in a huge way if Australia really upheld its commitment. A day was set aside at COP26 to discuss gender equality and empowerment of women and girls in climate policy and action. Was that day more blah, blah, blah? Or are we seeing some results from that gathering? What we heard both inside and, and outside in the protests and in the meetings that were being held on the sidelines and in the streets, really impressive young people and really impressive women getting up and speaking to two or three things. You know, the first is for global leaders to really understand 
the unique impact that climate change is going to have upon women and girls, the ways in which that is gendered all around the world. I don't think leaders really understand that just yet, and they don't understand the, the intersection between gender and things like socioeconomic status. As Betty was saying earlier, all around the world, women will experience climate change in unique ways depending on where they live. But I think also, if the leaders were listening, what they would have heard is that women and girls play really unique roles in addressing climate change. And sometimes it's through activism, but sometimes it's through as scientists. Sometimes it's as social leaders. Sometimes it's within generations of families where women carry the knowledge about how the land changes and about how the climate changes and about how that affects agriculture. It's important that what the leaders heard out of our Gender Equality Day at COP26 was that women have a very unique role to play in addressing climate change. And that needs to be harnessed, it needs to be better understood, and it needs to be upscaled. The third thing we need to see the COP leaders listen to is the fact that, that young people and women particularly have a really important role to play in the decision-making processes. You look up at the stages of the leaders and still now you see very few women you see very few young women who are actually making the decisions. And I had a look at the draft agreement. Uh, hopefully Australia will sign the draft agreement. It says that the parties will agree to a gender responsive approach to climate change, which is absolutely central. They'll agree to the important role that young women play and that their space is created for them to participate. In 2019, UNICEF and a number of organisations sponsored the creation of a declaration of children, youth and climate action. And this is a really important document, which, as, as you were saying earlier, acknowledges the fact that the future is theirs to inherit and that they should be part of the decision making process. So it would be really terrific to see that kind of wording and even stronger wording that gives young people, gives women an absolute guaranteed place at the table in these decision making processes. So to you, Betty, what would you like to see happen? You really need to look at it in terms of urgency and immediate action, what needs to be done now to mitigate issues that are right here, that there's a longer-term sustainable plan so that these shorter-term approaches don't make things worse, but actually transform opportunities. And in doing so, actually reduce gender inequality, you know, ageism, or make things better. There is potential. I think there's a lot of good commitments out there on, on justice, on human rights, which can be used to actually take action. You have to be willing to engage in collaborative efforts with those who are most affected to actually make sure that these climate action is actually well-intended and is transformative in nature. Betty Barker, and before that you heard Katrina Lee Koo, both from Monash University. And I'll put a link to their paper on the Communication Mixdown website. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Militantly, never you fear. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Well,
and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR. The show is Communication Mixdown, and it's great to have you with us. My next guest is Nick Bainton. He's an associate professor in social anthropology at the University of Queensland. His research focuses on the social and political impacts of natural resource extraction. Nick's just published a paper in the conversation entitled, More Clean Energy Means More Minds. We Shouldn't Sacrifice Communities in the Name of Climate Action. In his paper, he points out that at the COP26 climate discussions, business, government and civil society leaders met to discuss the social challenges as the world shifts to renewable energy and the importance of a just transition. I began by asking Nick what is meant by a just transition. The just transition concept emerged out of the labour union movement back in the 1970s and it was really about looking after the interests of frontline workers and communities. This has evolved into the concept that prioritises the interests of labour as we're shifting from fossil fuels to renewables. The implications for workers and families and communities who are reliant upon those industries that are being phased out. This becomes quite a political issue. We've seen that play out in America. We're certainly seeing that play out in Australia. But it has a much broader significance when we look at other countries, say South Africa or throughout India, Indonesia as well, where there's a heavy reliance upon coal as an extractive industry. And when you start to talk about a global transition, then we're starting to look at many, many people who are in very vulnerable positions already who stand to lose a livelihood if there isn't measures put in place to be able to ensure that their interests, various justice considerations Uh, that would impact them are taken into account. You've argued for a broader approach to the concept. If you follow the, the justice elements all the way through that supply chain for renewable energy, then automatically you're dealing with a larger set of interests than just the labourers and communities who are at that front end of the transition. What we see as significant at the moment is that there is a global commodities uptick major companies are recognising that that there's increased demand for what we're calling energy transition minerals and metals. And that's likely to increase into the future as we see governments making commitments to phase out of fossil fuels and to put in place investments in renewables. A global energy transition, as it's currently configured, will require many more mines. And what we're wanting to draw attention to is the justice footprint of all of those new extractive projects. Because essentially what this does is call into question the idea of a just transition. Just how just is it? And justice for whom? My question is, was it ever just? I mean, we're not just, we're not even starting from position of justice. Yes, certainly in many situations, you've got an unjust starting point. But at a minimum, the idea of a just transition is to ensure that base level interests for workers and families are not further eroded by virtue of an energy transition. You've just mentioned the demand for new minerals. What kind of minerals and resources are being looked at here? We hear a lot of terms being thrown around, terms like rare earths or critical minerals. We're at the university here using a more encompassing term, what we call energy transition minerals and metals. There's roughly 26 energy transition metals. It's in addition to the rare earths. There's at least 10 or more rare earth elements that are that are key for an energy transition. The reason that we're 
trying to use a more expansive term is because it's not just the minerals and metals that are needed for new technology, but also those bulk commodities that are then needed for building infrastructure. So energy storage infrastructure, for example. Are we likely to see then a lot of new mining projects open up and where would they be? Different commodities that we find obviously across different geographical regions. Copper is quite commonly found in in South America and also throughout Asia Pacific, cobalt in parts of Africa, Democratic Republic, the Congo. That's been some very high profile cases of conflict around cobalt mining there. But in addition to terrestrial resources, there are very large marine resources as well. So future frontier could be deep sea mining industry. There seems to be a conflict that you refer to in your paper between the need to mine to get to a renewable energy, but at the same time, getting these minerals is also going to do a lot of damage to the environment and also to Indigenous people's land. And there's really a tension there. That's right. What we're trying to draw attention to is the question over the distribution of the benefits and burdens of a global energy transition. Who wears the costs of our, particularly in the global north, for energy transition? And is that going to be evenly distributed or are we going to see the global energy transition entrench already existing forms of inequality and human rights impacts and abuses that are already playing out as a result of extractive industries? It's exactly the same people that are just going to shift across to be mining these new minerals that are needed. And already there are histories and stories of human rights abuses by these groups, especially Australian companies in Africa, South America. Some of the companies that are already invested in fossil fuel extraction are pivoting and seeing that the opportunity to invest in energy transition metals. You only have to have a look through the websites of some of these large extractive companies to see the ways in which they're already positioning themselves and using that sort of language to say, we are essential to the global energy transition. We provide the materials that are going to be needed for society going forward into the 21st century. So there's certainly a very clear opportunistic dimension to this. There's particular concerns about water resources because a lot of these mines are water intensive. Are you seeing much about that? This is a particular issue in South America where there's lithium mining in the Atacama Desert. And of course, that being an exceptionally dry environment and where water is also of great significance to people there locally. So you start to see conflicts emerge there around competition over water and the different meanings that are ascribed to to water. I think ecologically, this has the potential to be very destabilising. How can we protect water resources, the traditions of Indigenous peoples? How can we move to make sure things are just? It is difficult. And depending on the jurisdiction which a company is operating, that legislation may be stronger or weaker. There are various international instruments designed to try and safeguard some of these environmental and social interests. One of those which we raised in the paper was the UN guiding principles based on a three-pillar framework of protect, respect and remedy. So the idea that states are responsible for protecting human rights, corporations are responsible for respecting human rights and and upholding them. But there also needs to be access to remedy mechanisms for those people who've been affected. And that at the moment continues to be the weakest pillar, having good access to remedy. 
And we see that play out in quite a few extractive context situations where people's human rights have been impacted, but then they've got very limited options for redress. So our concern going into the future is where we've got an extractive industry that continues to operate the way it already does. What will be the mechanisms for people to be able to, to get remedy and to seek justice for those impacts? This has been around for about 11 years, these guidelines. And yet over that time, we've already seen um, mining companies running roughshod over people's rights. It's great. People are talking about these things, but uh, obviously much more needs to be done. Any thoughts on what that might be? There is moves afoot in the European Union, for example, around putting in place mandatory due diligence on human rights, essentially legislating the requirement for human rights. There's also talk about the idea of climatizing human rights, holding powerful actors accountable for their human rights impacts that they create, whether that's as a result of extraction or as a result of building renewables and putting renewables in place. It forces corporations to be accountable for those human rights impacts, particularly where they have a climate change dimension to them. So that may be the direction that things are going in. But at the moment, what we have is voluntary schemes. And of course, that gives corporations a fair bit of latitude. But then there are the corporate courts in which companies take countries court if they've passed a law that's going to have an impact on the company's profits. And we've seen it in Australia, of course, with the plain packaging. It's almost as if corporations can overrule country laws. Yeah. And I think what we've had is a reasonably open global market with the pressures that are starting to come with climate change and the recognition of the need to secure those resources to build renewables. We're going to see a change in geopolitics. We will see certain nations on a pathway to securitization of those critical minerals. So what will that do to the markets remains to be seen. And then how would specific companies or corporations react to that if those markets are closing down within some countries who are trying to hold on to the resources that they have? Yes. And so I'm wondering how you're feeling, and particularly after the COP26 meeting. I find it all quite depressing. It's difficult to see the level and scale of change that's required, and particularly since the solutions that we're currently driving are so compromised in their own ways and will certainly come with many costs. So there'll be a very large hidden dimension to the changes that we're trying to set in place. Whilst I remain hopeful, it's certainly a very depressing. What would you like to see happen? I think if we're talking idealistic scenarios, for me, then I see that we really only have two pathways. One is the current pathway we're on, which is continuous economic growth based on an extractivist logic and that we're going to essentially mine our way out of the mess that we got into in the first place through an extractivist logic. Or it's a degrowth pathway, which is a rather fundamental shift for all of society. And I think that's, for me, really the only viable alternative that will get us to the destination that we need to be at. We do have a very activist audience at 3CR. Is there anything our listeners can do? I think the first thing is to not take claims of a green economy or a green transition at face value, to ask what are the costs of particular forms of climate change action. 
don't get me wrong, we certainly need an urgent energy transition, but we need to ask these difficult questions and to have that conversation around the distribution of the costs and benefits of those actions. Certainly one thing we can do is be putting pressure on the political class and asking those questions when they're making claims about the transition strategies that are being put forward. Show us what the costs are. Have we thought it through in terms of the full set of justice issues that might carry out along that supply chain? Nick Bainton from the University of Queensland, and I'll put a link to his paper on the Communication Mixdown website. And we're coming to the end of Communication Mixdown here at 3CR today. Take care, stay warm, and I'll catch you next week. Here's Ossie Bisa with Think About the People.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.